All right, welcome everyone to episode 81 of the 25 Live slash uh, bonus episode of APS Radio on Fire Engineering. My name is Jim Bernica. I'm here with Ariel Winberg. Did I say that right? Yes, thank you. <laughs> not like, not like that mermaid that we both equally dislike. Uh, Ariel E and E News. Uh, you did two great articles recently, and I wanted to get you on the show here to actually kind of just talk about those. Um, and kind of do almost an oral version of those articles. Of so are you, are you with me? Yes. Thanks Does for that having me. that sound exciting and fun? That sounds great. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so first of all, and I know you do a lot of environmental stuff. I mean, that's your job. When did PFOS first come on your radar? Wow. PFOS on my radar, it seems like ever since I've been covering water issues but I'm right now I'm the public health reporter at E&E News um, but for the previous three years I covered water um, and that can be kind of environmental wetlands issues sea level rise type stuff but it can also be uh, you know toxins in your drinking water lead in the drinking water and of course PFAS uh, are in drinking water <laughs> unfortunately and and so must, it must have been a while ago that I that I first learned about them. Um, but you know, I've I've been covering kind of the efforts at EPA to to regulate them, and you know, it's complicated because there's so many of them, um, and and the our regulatory system sometimes has a hard time of of keeping up with you know a situation like PFAS when you know you have compounds that are really well studied, and then very, very similar compounds that are not quite as well studied. But those are all uh, safe, right? Well, <laughs> that's the thing is that, that that's what the chemical companies will tell you or, or, you know, when it comes to firefighters, that's what the gear manufacturers will tell you. And in reality, you know, the verdict's not really out on them yet. And there's a lot of reasons to believe that, that they would have similar health effects to the ones that have been really well studied. Nice. Now, let me ask you this and follow up to that would be, when did you first realize that this was kind of specific also, at least in the, in the gear and the foam to firefighters? Yeah, I think I remember I didn't, I wasn't writing about it, but last year, um, you know, we, everything I cover is a lot of the times from the federal government perspective. And so last year when Congress put in the defense bill, um, a lot of provisions relating mostly to AFFF um, and the PFOS and the firefighting foam. That that's that's kind of when I started to realize that it was a firefighter issue. But but in terms of in the gear, I I really didn't start realizing you know how you know pervasive PFOS are in the gear. It's in you know all the turnout gear um, until um, there's a an environmental activist advocate that I I talked to quite a lot just generally, because because she follows, you know, the same kinds of issues I follow. Her name's Kyla Bennett. She works for Peer, and, and she'd been working with Sean Mitchell out in Nantucket, um, you know, and, and the the work that he's been doing for PFAS and, and Turnout Gear. And so she started tweeting about the IAFF vote. And so I just kind of sent her an email and was like, hey, what what's this about? Is this something you're working on? Seems interesting to me. And, you know, down the rabbit hole, I went probably lots of rabbit holes i imagine yes yes <laughs> all right let's dive into that kind of first article you did mm -hmm. that the catch-22 protective gear full of carcinogens and i'll uh share I'll, I'll put the links in for the articles on all the web stuff for everybody else to follow so you mentioned his name already let's talk about sean mitchell he was really uh 
uh, him and Jason Burns uh, wrote Resolution 28 for the IFF and a bunch of Florida guys also did 31, which were kind of complimented each other as far as the resolutions go, just both addressing PFOS, um, but in different, different ways. So uh, was Sean Mitchell the first person you ended up talking to about this? Um, actually, I talked to Jason first. Um, and I and I kind of reached out to him on Twitter. I used to, before I worked at E&E News, I was a reporter in a place called New Bedford, Massachusetts. And New Bedford is a city, it's very close to Fall River where Jason is, and the cities are kind of like rivals. <laughs> and I, I was just honestly excited to kind of talk to someone from my old haunt um, and, and you know, was excited to talk to someone about now, the issues that I cover now, but but from a place that I, I know and love. Um, and so I, I was, I talked to Jason first about, you know, his experiences and how he had some very young firefighters in his station who were diagnosed with cancer and, and how he kind of became worried about the gear and that light and, and also worried that um, IAFF wasn't doing enough to inform firefighters about the risks. Um, and then maybe the next day I talked to Sean um, and, and Sean's experience of, you know, being aware of that these chemicals are in the gear and trying to find gear without the chemicals and, and just kind of being confronted with the fact that, number one, you can't get gear without PFOS right now, um, but but that's not really easy information to learn. <laughs> and and sort of his, his experiences with that, you know, I, I found very interesting and, and, and moving, and that's why I decided to pursue the issue and, and go deeper. So he mentions in your article, you know, he basically says, who has our back? You know, you would think the IFF and NFPA, you know, these big regulatory or, or these, you know, this, this union that's supposed to, you know, take look out for the health and safety of firefighters would have our back. And you kind of find out that's not necessarily the case. Let's start down that rabbit hole for NFPA, if you will, because you okay. were able to do some uh, deep diving. But I mean, by the way, like, you know, Diane Cotter has done her homework on this stuff and, and she's been great and she's found out so much stuff, but in a pretty short time frame, you were able to, you know, put this all together in a couple articles and it, you know, with backing it all up, showing the documents and, and making sense of the whole thing. So I, I applaud you for that, by the way. And I think Thank everybody you. else does. When we saw this stuff, we were like, how did she do this? And I mean, what, like two week time frame? It was it was a couple of weeks. It might have been there might have been a third week in there. It's hard to <laughs> hard to remember. But you no, know, and I mean Diane is someone who I talk to a lot for for the story. You know, she's she and, and Sean together. I think it's really amazing the the work that they've done, the research that they've done. Um, I'm into this and kind of gave me a roadmap of, of these are the things that were interesting. And then then I as a reporter, you know, I go and I independently verify everything that they're telling me. Um, and, and talk to NFPA and talk to IAFF and, and get their side of things too. Um, but, but the work that they, they did was really foundational. Um, but yeah, so NFPA, uh, as I'm sure your listeners know, <laughs> sets the safety standards for firefighting equipment and those safety standards, they don't say you must have PFAS in here, but the standards, the, the tests that the equipment has to go through you know, essentially de facto means that there are PFAS in the gear. Um, and, and at least, I mean, one of those tests, um, you know, in terms of the water absorbency, 
of the outer shell is one that there are manufacturers who are working on on creating those textiles without PFAS, but you're still always going to have PFAS in the moisture barrier because of this test that was put into the NFPA standards back in 2007. It was finalized that the moisture barrier has to be able to withstand 40 consecutive hours of very harsh ultraviolet light. Yes, the moisture barrier, by the way, that doesn't see light. Correct. Has to, you know, be able to take 40 hours. Of it. So that makes perfect sense to us non-scientist people, right? Well, and I mean, that's the kind of thing that as a reporter, you see that and you're like, okay, well, how, how did this happen? Because it doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense to a lay person. And, you know, in, in some instances, as a reporter, you know, if I'm coming to a subject new without a lot of background information, I say, well, geez, that doesn't make sense. And then I talk to the experts and the experts say, no, 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 here's the broader context of why it, it actually does things do come together this way. But on the, this UV light test, I mean, all the reporting I did, it still, it still is not something that makes sense even to, you know, a lot of the experts who are studying these textiles. So you, and you even reported that uh, Lion Apparel paid $100,000 to this Elizabeth Easter to come up with this, this test to begin with. Well, we don't, we don't know. We don't know that that's why they paid her, but we do know that she has had a relationship with Lion in the time period around which she was doing this testing. And, you know, she did not respond to my question saying, you know, is, is this why you did the testing or, or anything like that? Um, but, you know, it, it's something that would raise eyebrows. And so it's worth putting in the story because, you know, my job as a reporter is to give people the information that I have. And then people can make their own decisions and come to their own conclusions about it. But you gave, and I, and I appreciate you correcting me, by the way. Um, yeah please do throughout this whole thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't get me in trouble. Um, so, but you did reach out to her and yes. it was a no comment basically, or I'm not answering that. Or... So she, I, I originally just reached out to her saying, Hey, I saw that you're the one who proposed this UV test. Can you tell me why? And here's my phone number. And she wrote me back an email saying it's because back in the nineties, there were all of these moisture barriers that were failing. They were disintegrating you know, firefighters were getting these horrible steam burns. It was a legitimate problem that, you know, people who research these textiles, you know, needed to figure out how do we stop this from happening? Because, we, you know, steam burns are no joke. You want to get, like, eliminate that, that risk. Um, and, but she didn't explain in that email, okay, well, how did you come up with the idea to, to test UV light on this? And, you know, why, why did you do the, why did you propose this in 2006, which is way after these equipment failures were happening? So I sent her an email with, with those kinds of follow-up questions and she didn't respond until after the story came out. Um, <laughs> Are you able and, to share with what her response was afterwards? Yes, because I, I ended up updating the story um, after it was published to, to say um, what she said. And she basically responded saying that she did believe that the moisture barriers could be exposed to sunlight or even fluorescent lights within the fire station. Um, but she really only said that the purpose of her work was to quote, prevent future failures 
of moisture barriers. And so it didn't really get to the root of, okay, but you know, how, do, how does this make sense? Um, so I put, you know, her, her updated response, the article was updated, um, but it, it doesn't really change the fact that there is this test required of the gear that results in PFAS being used in all moisture barriers. All right. Well, let's, let's get to kind of these, you know, they, they say these moisture barriers, these polymers are, are solid, you know, they don't go anywhere. But then you have Dr. Peasley from University of Notre Dame that says, no, these, these are going, you know, everywhere. They are coming out of the gear and we're possibly absorbing these or inhaling these. Um, and it's kind of like they've denied that science is there until he really came along. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the, the idea that polymers are more stable than what you would call monomers, which is just a standalone chemical, like that's, that's true. It's true of a lot of polymers, not just ones with PFAS, but it's also true that a lot of polymers, not just ones with PFAS can break down. And so the question for firefighters is, well, you know, how much do they break down? How much of these chemicals are escaping? And then once they escape, how can they get into firefighters' bodies or do they get into firefighters' bodies? And because of the work Graham Peasley has done, we bare minimum know, yes, these PFAS are escaping. And then, you know, I think the question of how or whether are they getting into firefighters' bodies, there's less research on that. But there's enough, we know enough about the PFAS in the dust and about the PFAS wiping off on your skin to at least have that concern and that question where firefighters, that's information that if I were a firefighter, I would want to know before I decide when am I putting on this gear? Am I only putting it on when I really need it to protect myself from fire and from smoke? Or am I going to go and wear it to the grocery store or to do a demonstration for school children or all the other times that I know firefighters in the past have used their their gear without thinking about it because they didn't know the risks no you, you figure that it's going to keep you safe keeps you safe from everything else it's not right. going to harm us and then you learn well <laughs> right maybe it is so you know let's switch it up you know regarding graham he you know he puts out these studies uh, and he just had the dust study that you kind of referred to come out i'll actually read a quote from that he said that 99% of the material could be tied up as a polymer in a textile, but there's enough free PFOS material that there should be a concern about absorption, ingestion, and inhalation. Peasley said, this isn't just oozing, it's flooding out. So this stuff is coming out. They think it's not, but it, it you know, everything he shows that, that, it, that it is. Um, after he put out his initial study, the IFF basically released a statement calling for more research. You know, which is common in the science world, right? Right. All right. So they then started funding their own studies on PFAS and blood, turnout gear, and station dust. And I don't believe any of those are available at this point. Correct. All right. So um, Raquel Siegel, and I, I apologize if I say that, but she represents the IFF and a lot of this stuff. You know, when she uh, did, I, I can't remember which conference this was at. I don't know if it was the um what do you call it the 
cancer symposium or what, but she says, this is what is protecting you from your liquids, your oils, your bloodborne pathogens, it's heat. When you look at it at this point, your PFAS chemicals are needed. And that's when she also did the whole golf balls and volleyballs and PFAS polymers. And you watched that video, right? Right. Yes. That, <laughs> what do you think of that? I mean, I think that the... I, I think that, you know, there's sort of this feedback loop where you have these safety standards and the fact that these chemicals are virtually required by the safety standards kind of gives them a legitimacy that they're, you know, they're really needed. And that's kind of what IAFF is saying. Well, they're in the, they're in the safety standards, so they're really, truly needed in this gear. and really the question is, is that true? You know, are they really needed in this gear or is, is the UV light test really needed? Is that, because even as far back as 2005, when it was first proposed, you have one other member of the NFPA committee saying, you know, I don't think there's actually evidence that it was UV light causing these equipment failures that we're worried about. So. And that is, guy, and that guy, by the way, is usually, the smartest guy there. Jeff, that's Jeff Stoll, right. And, and, and so- And leads the way in a lot of this stuff. Right, and I mean, I, I don't think Jeff is, would not go, he would not say that means that, you know, PFAS aren't necessary in gear, but if the question is, is the UV light test really necessary? Then I think, you know, that the follow-up question then is, well, can you make a moisture barrier that would be safe for firefighters without PFAS in it? And- you know, so to to sort of claim that this is necessary for safety, I think I would think that that's questionable at this point. Whereas IF and the gear manufacturers are saying, no, it's in the standards. If it's in the standards, it's necessary. So, staying on the IFF topic, yes. Um, you know, they, they made a statement in your article that industry money does not affect what it tells its firefighters about PFOS and their gear. And you also were able to say, you actually threw some numbers out that you're able to find. You know, since 2006, turnout gear and textile manufacturers have donated more than $480,000 to the IFF. Since 2016, but yes. Is that what I said? I thought you said 2006. I don't know. I can't. Even with my glasses, I can't read. I apologize. <laughs> 2016. Uh, cumulative annual donations jumped from five to six figures in 2018 after Peasley's test. You know, just as a reporter, when you when you find that out, when you realize that, what do you what are you thinking personally? Well, you have to wonder. You know, were were those donations in response to to the tests, and and specifically, the 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 money that the gear manufacturers were spending starting in 2018 you see the where i found this by the way it's as a union there's reporting of financial documents that iaff has to submit to the department of labor and those are publicly available if you know how to search their database which takes a little time to figure out um so this is this is something anyone can can look up and, and take a look at and um Starting in 2018, when you see this increase in spending from the gear manufacturers, a lot of that 
was itemized as advertising, like in the IAFF um, publications, the magazine and things like that. Whereas before a lot of the money is they're spending for, you know, exhibits at the convention or, or things that you might expect would be kind of routine for folks in the firefighting industry. Okay, there's a convention, let's go and set up our booth and we have to pay, you know, some money to do that. You know, that, that seems pretty, average and, and, and normal like that, that it would be taking place every year. But, but it's the advertising money that all of a sudden starts coming out starting in 2018 um, as Dr. Peasley starts publishing his findings about, hey, there's PFAS in this, hey, the PFAS are rubbing off and, and things like that. And then in 2017, the union puts out a fact sheet uh, and it closely mirrors Lyons fact sheet uh, which only focused on PFOA, mm -hmm. which we know, I mean, that's the one that Rob Allot uh, did all of his work on, uh, caused different illnesses and several cancers. And that, that is, they're not using that anymore. They always say, uh, initially, and this kind of goes back to Sean Mitchell saying, oh, you know, they, they would say, oh, well, that, that's legacy gear. It's 2015, you know, and before that's not in, we don't have to worry about that anymore. In which Sean and I both have the same attitude of we were wearing fire gear before 2015. And oh, by the way, a lot of us still have sets that aren't expired because it takes 10 years. Right. Um, what did you think of when you noticed that you had a manufacturer and the union basically saying exactly the same thing? I mean, I think in, in, in some level, it makes sense, right? That if there's a potential problem with the product, you call up the product manufacturer and you say, hey, what's what's the deal with these tests? Like, what's this guy finding? What are you doing, you know, to these to this gear? Is this gear safe? And of course, you know, Lion comes out with their line about, oh no, it's just PFO you have to worry about. And so in some respects, it makes sense that maybe at that time, IFF would say, this is, this is what Lion is telling us, or this is what the manufacturers are telling us is just PFOA. But, you know, at this point, starting in 20, around 2017, I mean, people knew their other PFOS existed. <laughs> um, and, and so for me, as someone who knows a lot about chemicals and the chemical industry, you know, my question would be, okay, well, what do you, what's replacing PFOA? If, if there was, let's say there's a, there's a need for PFO in this gear and now you're not using it anymore. Okay, well, what are you using? You know, because does the gear function any differently than it did in 2015? No. So what's what's the replacement? You know, and I, I don't think we know whether that's a question IAFF asked or knew to ask back then. It's certainly, you know, something obviously that's that's known now because that's something that, that's how, how Sean Mitchell kind of started confronting these manufacturers is by asking, okay, well, what's the replacement? Oh, it's other PFAS. Okay, so doesn't that raise similar questions? Exactly. So, and, and I'm not sure this next part, I'm not sure if you're even aware of this. So uh, earlier this year in January, it was the first uh, IFF cancer awareness kind of prevention month. The whole month mm -hmm. they did stuff for cancer awareness prevention. They, they worked with the FCSN so they had a month's worth of material. They were really good about putting stuff out every single day within that month. There was PowerPoints, there was videos, there was all sorts of different things. 
I mean, there was a lot of content in there, but there wasn't a single mention of PFOS. So it said they just, they completely, for whatever reason, I don't know, they looked the other way. They didn't address it. They just <laughs> pretended like it wasn't there. I don't know. Did, did anybody ever talk to you about that? I don't think I did when I, when I talked to you. Um, well, I mean, Jason and Sean definitely told me about, I don't, I don't know if it was, I don't think it was about like that month long thing, but about previous, you know, cancer seminars fund that IFF put on that were funded by the gear manufacturers, at least in part, and that, you know, didn't mention PFAS and um, yeah, I mean, to me as a reporter, right, like my job is like the entire theory behind my job is I collect all the information, I write it up, I give it to the people and, you know, people decide what, what's important to them or, or that's how then you guys can calculate your risks or whatever. And so when I hear that information that I would want to know as a firefighter is not being disseminated by a group meant to advocate for firefighters that's worth writing about yes and so you have it again early january or you know this starts coming out and you're able to look at this i mean january 1 or whatever date it came out you were able to skip ahead and just see what's what's on there um nothing on there so it's pretty significant that later on this month the memberships uh, had a say and they, you know, we had our convention. It was supposed to be last year, but it was pushed back for obvious reasons. We had those two resolutions in there. Then this is what got your interest in the story to begin with. Uh, resolution 28, which Jason and Sean were part of, it passed 1,536 to 10. Uh, the gist of that was no longer accepts sponsorships from chemical industry and also talks about independent studies. And, and there's a lot more to it as well. Uh, resolution 31 from the Florida guys and gals passed 1,472 to four, uh, and that sought cooperation with manufacturers to immediately cease the use of PPE containing PFAS. So they, they wanted the IFF to work on that and also apply for federal grants to study negative health effects of PFAS in our PPE. So things have drastically changed here rather quickly. We've, and we've already, in that short time frame. I'm not sure if you've been able to stay on top of this or not, but all of a sudden there's all sorts of different manufacturers that are like, Hey, we have PFOS free moisture bear, or excuse me, outer shells. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, <laughs> I think they realize the gig is up at least for the most part they do most of them, not all. Of them. Right. So, and that kind of leads me then to article number two. Right. So, you know, and that was entitled firefighters face lies, phony, studies on PFOS exposure. Um, so you were, I mean, you were able to review dozens of documents uh, that show textile gear manufacturers misleading us. And we've already kind of touched on that with, yeah. with Sean Mitchell. Um, I know in there, our friend Diane says it's, uh, it's dumbing down to blue collar workers, making us believe they have our backs when really they're going to great lengths to hide things. And that was really what we kind of found out. Um, Sean, I, uh, a handful of people, you know, throughout this that really started looking into this, you want to, and kind of, you mentioned it before, you would think if something's wrong, you would reach out to the manufacturer and they would be upfront and honest and tell you, you know, what's going on. And they, 
went to great lengths to kind of um, do the, do the opposite to protect themselves. So you, I know you, I imagine, <laughs> I'm guessing you see this probably all over the place and the different uh, type of stories you do. Um, was there anything just completely outlandish where you just kind of shook your head and you went, really? <laughs> <laughs> or was this all kind of normal? Just cause you're actually used to it. I mean, yes and no. I mean, like, I think I, I, the way I kind of describe it in the story is that, you know, these gear manufacturers are following the same playbook that chemical companies have used for decades to say, oh no, our product, you know, isn't as bad as you think the studies that exist, here's why they're not relevant to, to what we do. And, and, you know, that, that's a, that's a proven playbook. Tobacco used it. Agent Orange, the makers of that used it. And, and it's something that the makers of PFAS and PFOA have used that now the gear manufacturers that use PFAS and used PFOA are picking up on. Um, but, but just because it's familiar doesn't mean it's not still shocking. <laughs> I mean, I, I've seen, you know, cases where these sort of outside experts will say, oh, well, you know, animal studies, who knows whether what we do to rats is applicable to people. That, that's a familiar claim. What, what I thought was pretty um, new <laughs> is, is when you have uh, Lions consultant, Paul Krastowski, taking legitimate studies done by scientists at UC Berkeley and, and literally flipping the findings on their head. I mean, in his, his presentation says, oh yes, UC Berkeley looked at PFAS in the blood of firefight female firefighters versus female office workers. And it was consistent. The, the blood PFAS levels was consistent. And that's not true. Like, it's just not true. The study actually found two levels of the PFAS were higher in firefighters' blood. And when I called up the author of that study and said, hey, here's, here's this PowerPoint presentation. She watched it herself. Is What do you think? And she says, oh, that's a misrepresentation of my work. It seems like they're just trying to say their products are okay, and we don't really know that. You know, I mean, to have that level of misinformation I found shocking and unusual. Did, did you reach out to that nice fellow, Mr. Krastowski? Yes, I did. He's actually a very nice man on the phone. He, he was, we had a very jovial conversation about whether his presentations were factual. <laughs> um, and, you know, some, some people, as a reporter, you call them up and you ask them, you know, hard-hitting questions like, are you lying to people? Um, and they get very defensive. And, and I guess to his credit, he was very friendly about defending his work. Um, you know, I asked him, you know, I, I said to him, hey, this, this researcher at UC Berkeley um, says you're misrepresenting her. And he just says, oh, well, she's, in, she's entitled to her own opinion, like about her own work okay, <laughs> like, I, you know, so he, he was very, it was a very friendly conversation in which he completely stood by all of the misrepresentations that he made and tried to convince me that, that he was right. Did that work? 
I mean, you read the article. Does it sound like <laughs> I believe him? Oh, no. no, you know I mean, what's. But, uh, but I mean that—that's the thing about about reporting is if, you know for all of these claims, you know I then go and talk to the toxicologist, talk to the epidemiologist to study this stuff, and the sort of broad strokes overall. I mean, not not everything that the that the manufacturers are saying about the stuff is as blatantly false as as you know that that claim about that one study but there definitely is this expression of certainty that oh no there's no way that the PFOS and the gear can be harming you giving you cancer even getting into your body and in reality what the research shows is we don't know that <laughs> And, and there's reason to believe or be concerned that it actually could be getting into your body. And that's, that's not even to mention the fact that, you know, understandably, a lot of firefighters' concerns about PFAS is the cancer concern. You guys have such high rates of cancers in the service to begin with. But PFAS have a ton of other health effects that are completely glossed over. Um, in Paul Krastowski's presentation and, and other things, I mean, it weakens the immune system. How many firefighters double as EMS or ENTs and we're in a global pandemic and maybe you need your immune systems to be strong right now. And that would be another concern to, to have about PFAS that, you know, the, the companies aren't, aren't addressing that really either. And in, in fact, in Paul Krastowski's presentation, he says, Oh yeah, PFAS aren't aren't carcinogenic. They just kind of contribute to these other things, and it's like a single slide, and then he moves on, um, and, and then continues to say, "Oh, but the gear is completely safe." Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, I want to get back to my buddy Paul here in a minute, but I did want to add on, and I just I just learned this the other day from a friend down south. And they mentioned that they were, they were looking for a foam alternative. They wanted a fluorine-free foam, something that's safe for the environment and safe for themselves. And they said they were looking at this foam. Uh, it, it said on the MS, you know, they were looking at all the different chemicals on MSDS and all the things they were looking at were in English. And then there was one word that stood out that was in French. They did the translator and they looked that up and it actually said it was C8. So you got everything on this, on this recipe of this foam, all these ingredients in English, but the one that you're not supposed to have in there at all is in French. And it, I mean, it, it just goes again to explain how far some of these, these places will go to try to fool us. Yeah. So anyway, um, so I guess this kind of leads it to me. Like I get tagged in next. Yeah, <laughs> in the story, yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> so, was first of all, was I your favorite interview? Oh, I can't have favorites. Come on. <laughs> that means yes. So, um, I kind of share with you my story about doing the show right here and um, how Lion was trying to influence me on what guest came on and all that kind of stuff. So initially, and this all started, um, 
after I put out my, my Grand Peasley episode, uh, it started that day, actually. Um, they wanted me to start interviewing kind of their people. Um, you know, I did that interview with, with, with uh, Christina Baxter, and I know the next time she sees me now, she's going to probably punch me, and that's, that's okay. Um, and, you know, but from there, it was just, it was so obvious um, to me that they were absolutely using me, you know, and, and I even wrote, I, I wanted to, you know, mark this down. So, and that's, this is in your report. You're able to kind of put up my emails, but on, on October 5th, uh, 2020 at 10 23 AM Eastern time, um, just checking in on the podcast of Christina, I'll be asked today about it from Steve. Thanks, John. And all I want to say to all my listeners out there is who's Steve. But that's another thing. <laughs> um, let's go back to our friend Paul. Mm-hmm. Because I did another episode. Uh, well, first of all, they wanted me to interview Dr. Paul Krastowski. And that's when I basically said, I'm not playing this game. And I went the other way and I brought my friend Sean Mitchell on. And they haven't reached out to me since for some reason. I don't know why that would be. But I had... Uh, my friend Larissa on the show um, from Orlando and uh, she actually wrote an article and then wrote two articles and um, Paul Krasowski ended up writing a rebuttal to hers and that was out there and then when we did our show and we kind of called him out on that all of a sudden it disappeared so that article I don't know where it went I don't know it was uh, just a coincidence but you can't even find that now. So probably after this, it'll show back up. Cause, uh, so I look like a liar, but I'm not a liar. Um, what did your, again, you deal with this too. When you um, found out that um, Gene Brabowski was in play with all this stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, he just called me up. I mean, I, I called, Paul, um, because actually, I think you gave me his resume. Um, well, <laughs> Lion, Lion gave me Lion his had resume. Sent it to you, and his, his resume had his phone number on it. So I called him up to talk to him about his slideshows. Um, and after I talked to him, I think I talked to him in the afternoon. And then the next morning, I got a call from Gene Grabowski saying, Oh, yeah, I work, work for Lion. I heard you talk to Paul. Paul doesn't usually talk to the media but you know you can call him whatever you want but you could also call me kind of a thing and and so we we chatted and you know he told me how you know he feels that line is really the middleman because they just kind of get the textiles from the textile makers and you know they don't really have a say about what's in it and and you know those those kinds of things that I I put in the in the story um and then he said you know do you have any questions, anything else that you want to talk to me about? And at, at the time, because I had just talked to Paul and, and Paul said he was going to send me studies, you know, proving that what he was telling me was correct. I said, you know, let me see what Paul sends me and then I'll probably have more questions. And um, she said, okay. And then a few days later, I sent him a very long email <laughs> with a lot of very detailed questions, including, you know, line by line what's in the story in terms of here are the here's the claim that Paul's making 
about this research. Here's what the researcher says he gets wrong. Here's, you know, this, that, and the other thing, um, and including, you know, here's a claim that Christina Baxter made on the podcast, on her website. Here's what the researchers say, or here's what the research says. You know, does Lyon stand by this? Does Lyon stand by this misinformation, or do you want to distance yourselves? Didn't get a response. So I, you know, in the story, it's, I, I quoted from my phone conversation with him, and then I say he didn't respond to my very detailed follow-up questions because it didn't. Nice. All right, next question for you. What was the best quote in your two articles? I know the, the best quote. Oh, because you you think it's yours. <laughs> I do. Well, I will I will say that any anytime I can get the word bullshit past my editors, I get happy. So <laughs> that was definitely the case with your quote. <laughs> when when I said that to you, where you're like. In your head, you're like, ding. That's <laughs> uh, yeah, there. I mean, there's definitely cases when you talk to folks and you know this quote just kind of sums up, you yeah. know, how I'm going to write it. And I, I definitely think that was the case with your quote. That was the case with a couple of Sean's as well. Yeah, my, um, my mother loved it. Like, she's like, I can't, <laughs> I can't believe you said that, but I can't believe it made it in there. <laughs> And what I'm talking about is, again, this is me being selfish, but it is my show. I can do that. Um, oh, yeah. Here we go. They manipulated me and my show and my listeners with their bullshit propaganda narrative. That's awesome. <laughs> You're like, yeah. Well, we do, we do have rules about when we include swear words in our stories. And, you know, every publication is different. Like, the big publications like the New York Times and the Washington Post are much more skittish about including swear words. But for us, it's kind of, you know, does it make a difference to the meaning of the quote, right? And so in my opinion, in your quote, the word bullshit, you know, adds a little extra oomph that, that you wouldn't have otherwise. So, and I guess the editors agreed because they let it, <laughs> let it slide. <laughs> All right. Now, you know that and i basically you had me close the comp you know the whole report number two article number two which was kind of neat um what was kind of the fallout of all this on your end um i got a lot of retweets from firefighters <laughs> i think i have a lot of new uh firefighters following me on twitter um otherwise i mean you tell me you're you're the the guy who's who's tapped into this world i i haven't actually heard from i i heard from lion after part one came out um they did not like our headline um i did not hear from anyone after part two came out so yeah i mean it'll it'll be interesting i mean i'm i'm watching to see if you know if anyone in in Congress or, or anything like that, it's going to start taking more of a look at the gear where they've done a lot of work on the foam. But, you know, on the foam, right, everyone in Congress has constituents whose water supplies has been polluted by the foam. So there's potentially more incentive from their perspective to take action on that. Sure. Was there, was there anything that you wanted to write about that you you didn't get it that you know just you know was left on the editing room floor <laughs> um 
you know, I didn't, I didn't at all have a chance to get into, but I, I would follow it in the future. There is an effort led by Jeff Stoll at NFPA, and you and I talked about this, um, to try and set some, potentially set some limits on PFAS in the turnout gear. And it didn't make it into the story, basically because there was so much else to, to put in the story. And, and also because that effort, you know, there isn't really a, a timeline on it right now. It's not really an official NFPA effort. It's, it's Jeff who's taking it upon himself to, to try and figure it out. So, so definitely if or when that, you know, actually gets proposed to be put in a standard or something like that, I, I'll definitely be following that issue. Well, I think the next step for all of us in this kind of revolution, if you will, is NFPA. You know, they're the ones right now that are, uh, because of their standards that are, you know, standing in the way of us having flooring free firefighting gear. If they were able to amend that UV light test or make it optional, all of a sudden we're able to get gear that doesn't have flooring in it. So I think that's the next logical step for us to put our attention to. Um, but I have to what you asked earlier, uh, there has been a lot of fallout. Um, well, you've especially seen it with the gear manufacturers. I've seen it with some researchers um, that are kind of scrambling right now, trying to figure it out because, uh, you know, in those resolutions, we want independent studies. We want stuff that's on the up and up. We're not going to get duped again. We're not going to fall for these games that a lot of people were playing and so a lot of them don't know how to be independent be unbiased so it's kind of interesting at, at what point did you realize that there was enough meat here for two articles <laughs> um maybe a weekend once once i got all of the emails from from you and sean and i had already started looking at you know, the NFPA records, you know, it just kind of became very clear that, because we, we have word limits, you know, we don't want to, I'm not, I don't write for a magazine, right, where you can write like 5,000 words and it's no big deal. I write for, you know, we're a website, but more akin to what a newspaper would be, right? And so these stories were probably some of the longest I've written, they're like 2,500 words, which is really long for us. Um, and so it just became really obvious that if I was going to put it in one story, you have to either gloss over sort of the more systemic institutional obstacles to getting PFAS out of the gear, that being, you know, the IAFF or the NFPA, or you'd have to gloss over, you know, the misrepresentations that the gear manufacturers are making. And, and to me, you know, that that's a very important part of the story because you know, I want to, and it's a part of the story that takes up a lot of space to tell, because you can't just say, I mean, you could, but I think it would be journalism malpractice, but you can't just say, here's what the gear manufacturers are saying, and it's wrong. It's really important for me to explain, you know, why it's wrong, how these misrepresentations are made, because they're being made to, to firefighters, to you guys, you're the consumers, and if, if you're interested in this issue enough to be reading my article, you may be asking similar questions in the future about your gear. And, you know, part of my job is to say, you know, here, I'm telling you, this is the playbook that the chemical industry uses, right, on a lot of different things. 
So I, I feel like it's my obligation to explain, like, here's how that works. So that, and that, that I think was the real impetus to have two articles, to, to be able to give, you know, the room to explain really what was going on. Perfect. Now, is there, I mean, I went over a lot of stuff with you. Is there anything that I neglected bringing up that you think I, I should have, or you want to speak of? No, I think you did a good job. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. Yeah. <laughs> I want to, I want to get this, this right. Um, like I said before, you did an amazing job of consolidating all this work and putting it into something that is easy to read and makes sense. And, and it's all it's factual. You can, you know, your, the documents are right there. You can click on it and there you go. Thank you. So, I mean, it's been, it's been easy to send people over there. If, you know, you want to learn about this, you haven't heard about this, check this article out. So. So that's good. I like, I, you know, I, I write it so people have the information. So it's, it's good to hear. It's a good resource. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure, you know, our team has already been putting it out there and using it and, and we'll continue to do so because there hasn't been anything to this point that's gone as deep. I mean, you really did. Like we mentioned earlier at the very beginning, I mean, you went down multiple rabbit holes. Right. Well, I mean, that's part of my job. This, I mean, this is the rabbit hole that, that impacted you guys, but I, I'm a reporter. I like rabbit holes. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, with that, uh, I'll get you out of here. If, if anybody wanted to, to email you, um, find you on Twitter or whatever, where would they track you down at? Yeah, my, my Twitter is just my name, at Arielle Wittenberg. Uh, my email is awittenberg at eenews.net. Okay. So, yeah. Well, there you go. Thank you again for putting in, you know, about what, two or three weeks of your time. But uh, what you came out with really, truly uh, is going to help the fire service in general. Not just Thank here you. in the U.S. It'll be even beyond that. So, no, Thank know you. that. Know <laughs> that. You did a good thing. Appreciate it. So, no, we appreciate you. And with that, I'll let you get out of here. I know you have a meeting. <laughs> and uh, I got to go pick up my little one. So sees Ariel Winberg. I'm Jim Bernica. And we are out of time. <laughs>